Glad you're here. Let's stand up. Yeah, that's a little good little shot of opening caffeine at church for you, huh? <laughs> 
Hey everybody, I'm Billy, I'm the worship pastor here, really glad you're here. Uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together as we've just declared that his love awakens us. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the morning, thank you for a time to come to church, a uh, time to be alive in this day, in this age, and have the gifts and the blessings you've given us. God, uh, each one of us could make a list after list of all that you've done for us. And I pray that you hear that from our heart today. I hear that you, we come not just um, waiting to see what uh, the church can serve up for me today, but God, what can we serve you today? How can we serve you with our blessing in our heart and all the things that you've done? So I pray that you'd see that from our heart first, just between me and you, God. I pray that you would see this thing that uh, happens, but as a collective whole, this collective whole that worships you and wants to give you glory. And um, yeah, we've prepared a lot of moments, a lot of things today that we hope are just a blessing for all of us. So uh, as we give to you, Lord, our heart and our gifts, we pray that uh, you would um, just receive all that and that we would receive too from your spirit. So that's what we pray in our gathering today as we gather up here at Hope Vale Church. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray and all of us say together. Amen. Amen. God bless you, gang. Hey, we're going to do this thing we call a meet and greet. So say hi to some people around you. We'll see you back in a second. Thanks, everybody. Well, good morning, Hopevale. Good morning and welcome to Palm Sunday. My name is Paul. I am one of the pastors here. And if you are visiting, if you are relatively new to Hopevale, we want to extend a special welcome to you, let you know we're glad you chose to worship with us this morning. And actually, I have a request of you if you're new. You were probably handed one of these cards when you walked in. There's a little visitor info card. I'd love for you to Tear that off and fill it out right now as I'm talking. You can drop it in the offering plate in just a moment. Or even better, you can take it out after the service out to the lobby and go to our welcome desk. And there are some folks there that have a gift for you and would love to meet you and welcome you more fully to our church. Thanks for coming today. The ushers are going to come forward and prepare to receive our morning offering. And as they do, I just want to make you aware of all that's happening this week, Holy Week, here at Hopevale, beginning with Palm Sunday. You've probably gotten an email, you've probably heard us talking about this eight days, one story, this journey we wanna go on together that starts today, runs all the way through till Easter Sunday. This coming Thursday, we have our Maundy Thursday services at six and 7.30 and there is childcare at the six o'clock service. And then on Good Friday, we have a guided prayer exercise for you that you're gonna hear more about as the week rolls on. And then on Easter Sunday, we have four services here, four identical services, 8, 9.30, 11, and 12.30. And if I'm sure many of you are inviting friends and family, if the 8 o'clock or the 12.30 service works for you, I'm just going to let you know that those services will be a little less crowded, might give you a little more space to hang out and worship together. We cannot wait to experience this journey from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday together. Let's pray. Lord, just want to thank you for all that you're doing here in and through Hopevale. And I want to thank you for what this week represents. Uh, the journey that you took on our behalf from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Uh, we are grateful. You took that journey for us. We could not have taken it for ourselves. Uh, we thank you for making a way for us to be right with our Father, with our Heavenly Father. And Lord, uh, we just want to worship you and say thanks through our offerings and through the rest of this service together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Paul. So yeah, today's Palm Sunday, friends. It's the beginning of the Holy Week. And, um, 
Palm Sunday marks this time that uh, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pastor Dan's going to unpack that today in his sermon time, so we're not going to unpack that right now. But that does make a little bit of sense for the next song that we're singing. We're singing this song called Hosanna, and it's not a, a song that sings about the Lord's first coming, uh, as he did in Jerusalem, but it's a Hosanna that sings of his second coming and one that uh, sings about coming down with clouds with fire and riding in on a, a bunch of horses and chariot and things like that that's described in the book of Revelation. So we live in a time of the second coming of Jesus. So there's a longing, I think, in the heart of every believer for something uh, better, something eternal, something that is just gonna uh, bless us, bless our socks off beyond anything that we know that's good here. And uh, so whether you're in a life of struggle or in a life of joy and happiness, there's so much beyond this place, and there's so much promise for us in eternity. So uh, that's that's our blessing, friends. So uh, we're going to sing this song, Hosanna, and uh, and worship the Lord through it through this uh, second cry of Hosanna. Take us in, Rob.
in a spirit of worship, would you have a seat?
Good morning, everyone. I'm Dan Davis, senior pastor here at Hopevale. Boy, what a wonderful morning of worship. It's been so great to share it with you. want to welcome those of you joining us in Bay City as well. Great to have you along on this day that we call Palm Sunday. So here's where we're going. This Sunday and next Sunday, and all the days in between, we are going to remember, we are going to reflect upon, we are going to engage with, and we are going to celebrate eight days that changed the world. Eight days that changed the world, and even more importantly, one story that can change your life. Because the stories surrounding these final eight days in the life of Jesus that we still recognize as holidays, nearly 2,000 years after they first happened, going from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, this story is a story of hope. Hope for everyone, including you, including me. Hope, that most precious commodity that breathes life into hurting hearts and searching souls. And so my prayer for you, our prayer here at Hopefell for all of us, whether you are a newcomer, whether you are a long-timer or somewhere in between, that this one story of these eight days will come alive in you in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine so that this hope that I'm talking about will become even more real to you like never before.
And I believe that can happen for you this Easter season. I really do so much soul, as you're going to hear toward the end of the message, we have put together a comprehensive eight-day experience so that you can immerse yourself in this life-changing, life-giving power of this one story. And so from now until next Sunday, that's where we're going. But this morning, let's start at day one of those eight days. Day one, the day that we call Palm Sunday. Actually, let me start even before that. Let me paint a little picture of what was going on 2,000 years ago during the early part of the first century in the Middle East. And the two words that I want you to think about to help paint that picture are these, the words power and privilege. Power and privilege. Actually, that power came in a couple different forms. First, there was the political power and the military might of the Roman Empire, the dominant world superpower back then, which brutally controlled the vast expanse of the Mediterranean world with an iron fist. Rome was in charge and everyone knew it, right? Everyone knew it, but nobody liked it, especially those in the promised land of Israel among the Jewish people who felt the oppression, they felt the disrespect, they felt the degradation from their pagan, godless overlords. And if that wasn't enough power and privilege, there was also the social and religious power of the select Jewish leaders back then who took the sacred law of God and twisted it to serve themselves rather than the Lord. They were corrupt and they used their positions of power for their own personal gain. They were hypocritical. They asked the common worshiper to do what they would not do themselves. And perhaps worst of all, they were cooperative. Cooperative with Rome. They were complicit in their injustices. So rather than looking out for the people that they led, they compromised their integrity to protect their own interests and to line their own pockets. And so when you put all this together, you come up with a privileged few in power, while the rest of society feels helpless and hopeless, like the system is truly rigged against them and it is never, ever going to change. Now, it's hard to transport ourselves back in time and across cultures, but maybe to get a feel for the desperation that most people felt back then, I want you to think about One of these uh, recent news stories, maybe you've seen this, the college admissions scandal that you might have read about involving dozens of people, including some high-profile celebrities. Know what I'm talking about? That essentially you had parents literally buying or bribing their children's acceptance into high-profile colleges and universities, covert cash payments, fraudulent academic records, phony athletic profiles. In the case of actress Lori Laughlin, I mean, Aunt Becky from Full House, people, I can't believe it, right? And her husband, they allegedly agreed to pay bribes totaling $500,000 in exchange for their two daughters' acceptance into the University of Southern California. They came in as recruits to the crew team, sports that they were never involved with. And so as these stories are blowing up, 
outrage has exploded across the country over all this injustice and unfairness. That getting into the schools like these wasn't about a child's merit or their achievement, but rather parental wealth and connections. I mean, even now as I'm telling you about this, it still makes my blood boil how unfair it is, right? And I know in our country, we talk about the privilege of the 1%, but the inequity, the injustice today is nothing compared to back in Jesus' time. No, things were way worse. Things were far more corrupt back then. And there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. Like I said, I'm trying to paint a picture. I'm trying to invite you into a story. A story that as we go through it might just seem a lot more like yours than you first think. Because regardless of the era, I think many of us have always felt like we're on the outside looking in. That with a bunch of haves, we feel like a have-nots. That what we need to bring us joy is beyond our reach and that things are never, ever going to change. And see, when you have that kind of feeling, it makes us desperate for hope. Desperate for hope. Desperate to latch on to something that's going to give us reason to wake up in the morning. Something that's going to keep us going and make us not quit. And yet back in Jesus' day, in the face of all these immovable obstacles... All this unbearable oppression. There were still many devout people who in their desperation, they refused to give up hope. They refused to give up hope. But despite the feeling of going through life unprivileged and powerless, they still held on to the promises, the same promises that their ancestors held on to, that things could really change. They could, and that this change, this great reversal of fortune would one day come through the one they called the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed of God from the lineage of King David, their most beloved ruler ever. And so they patiently waited. They prayerfully watched for some sign that the Messiah would come and would deliver them from all their despair. And see, back in the first century, in the Middle East, This expectation was very palpable, was in the air. History tells us that while Jesus is growing up in the relative obscurity of a backwoods town named Nazareth, as he's serving as a skilled trade apprentice for his working class father, Joseph, that in that time there were constant rumors of people who were claiming to be the Messiah. Stories that would provide these temperate, Temporary bouts of excitement, but only eventually to be exposed as fake in the end. The Messiah is here, the Messiah is there, you know. And this is going on for quite some time until Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus began his public ministry around the year 30 AD. But here's the thing, Jesus was relatively low-key at first. He did most of his teaching and performed many of his miracles in the Galilean region around his hometown, which was very far away from the center of political and religious power in Jerusalem. But as his ministry of teaching the truth, as his ministry of healing the sick continued, it was hard to keep that word contained 
No word spread. The buzz kept building about Jesus, and pretty soon this Jesus of Nazareth was, in a first century sense, going viral, right? Which pleased the masses, but perturbed the powerful. So much so that the religious elite back in Jerusalem, they viewed Jesus as a nuisance to address, a problem to solve, and even a threat to eliminate. And while all this is going on, Jesus remained a mystery to most people. A mystery because he kept on saying and doing things that people thought the Messiah would say and do. I mean, Jesus really did. His teaching spoke grace and truth deeply to human hearts. And that teaching had this weight of a heavenly authority far greater than any human institution. And the miracles he performed... (laughs) Cleansing the leper, delivering the demon-possessed. He brought sight to the blind. He brought health to the chronically sick. He strengthened the lame to walk, and he even raised the dead to life again. Jesus did all these things. Crowds of people witnessed these miracles firsthand, and they just knew that the supernatural was among them. The supernatural was among them. He had to be the promised Messiah, right? And yet, despite all the evidence, here's the thing. Jesus was basically non-committal about it. He never really overtly called himself the Messiah. Not only that, but he also told some of the people that he healed to not spread the word about him. Don't spread the word. Now, how crazy is that, right? Especially in our day and age of self-promotion and social media. I mean, if it's us... I mean, we'd whip out the phone and we'd be like, just fed 5,000 people, five loaves, two fish, hashtag Messiah, you know? (laughs) But Jesus, even as the masses of people were ready to make them their Messiah, he kept on shrugging it off, kept on playing it cool, month after month after month until, until the day came that we know as Palm Sunday. Because when that day rolled around, this would be the moment. This would be the moment that Jesus would finally answer the Messiah question that everyone kept asking him. And this time, he would essentially say, yeah, you're right. You're right, that's who I am. So let's see how that happens. Now, the Palm Sunday story is told in all four of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament that we know as the Gospels. But in our time today, we're going to see how the gospel writer Matthew tells it. Matthew. And so if you want to follow along, you can join me in your Bible, whether you brought a physical one, whether you want to pull that up on your phone. The gospel of Matthew chapter 21. You can also follow along in our message notes. And we put those up on the YouVersion Bible app, and we also put that on our own Hopevale app for smartphones and tablets. So this is the story of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday the first day of the last week in the life of Jesus. So let's take a look. Matthew 21, verse 1. As they, this is Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Saying to them, yeah, by her, go ahead. 
anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now, as I read that this week, I thought to myself, wait, so these guys are just supposed to go to a stranger's house, walk off with two animals, which is basically like in our day and age, driving away with two cars, right? And if anyone stops them, they're just supposed to say, hey, the Lord needs them. I think I've been doing life wrong, people, right? <laughs> Especially as a pastor, right? <laughs> oh, seriously, though, I mean, you, you look at this story. Even though Jesus wasn't from Jerusalem, wasn't from nearby villages like Bethphage or Bethany, uh, he did have many friends. He did have many fans in those areas. So from all appearances, this isn't theft. No, Jesus had probably prearranged all this in advance to happen. So let's drop down to verse 6. So, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So disciples go ahead and they get these two animals, the donkey and her colt, and they bring them to Jesus. The disciples place their cloaks on the animals and Jesus sits on the colt, the younger of the two. Now Mark and Luke in their Gospels, tell us that this animal had never been ridden before. While well, Matthew mentions here that there's this older donkey who, who probably is the colt's mother, right? And it's going to help assist the colt for his maiden ride. Now, you might be wondering, why do we need to know all this detail? I mean, here we are 2,000 years later. We already know that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem where he's about to be crucified. But the colt, the donkey, why is all that important? Well, there's a very specific reason for this, and as we begin to understand the why behind it, we're going to see that there's more going on than meets the eye. So Matthew 21, let's back up a couple verses to verse 4. And Jesus tells us that after the disciples bring the animals to Jesus, verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, the prophet Zechariah, who lived some 500 years before the time of Jesus. Say to daughter Zion, Jerusalem, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And with Matthew quoting the Old Testament prophet Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, you know, devout Jews had always understood these words as prophecy that referred to the Messiah, the coming king, the deliverer. And those who were astute in the scriptures would have remembered this promise. They would have understood what Jesus was about to do here in mounting this colt and riding into the city. Not only that, but other key historical moments for God's chosen people would have also come to mind as well, specifically the kingdom transition from David to his son Solomon. We're in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 1. We are told that Solomon was presented to the people on his father's donkey. And as Solomon rode through the streets of Jerusalem upon that donkey, the crowds rejoiced, trumpets blared, and the people cried out, saying, Long live King Solomon. Long live King Solomon, the son of David. They might also have thought back to more recent history for them 200 years earlier when this underdog freedom fighter by the name of Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem to similar fanfare. He recaptured the temple from the pagan Syrian king, and he and his empire reigned over the city for the next hundred years or so before the Romans conquered Jerusalem. 
Well, just like King Solomon, Jesus indeed is the son of David. And just like Judas Maccabeus, Jesus was about to ride into Jerusalem on a colt as a liberating king. And so when this moment comes, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, right? Jesus knows exactly what he's communicating with these actions. I am the Messiah, he will say through his actions. I am the promised one of Israel. I am the one Zechariah and many others for centuries look forward to. Because remember, up to this point, Jesus has been downplaying his messianic identity, even to the point of telling other people it's not their news to share or it's just not the right time to do so. But now everything is about to change. Everything is about to change when Jesus is going to take his colt to the old Palm Sunday road and ride all the way into Jerusalem until he can't ride no more. Sorry, couldn't resist. Okay, back to the story, verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, right? So this is spontaneous, This time of year when all this is going down, it's Passover season, there are thousands upon thousands of devout Jewish pilgrims, right, from all over. They have already descended upon Jerusalem. Scholars speculate that the population of Jerusalem would more than triple during this time. The place is packed. I mean, for us, picture a fall Sunday afternoon when tens of thousands college football fans invade places like Ann Arbor, East Lansing, right? The population swells, the anticipation builds, the hype runs hot, and the patience runs thin. This is Passover in Jerusalem. Now combine the time of year, the religious holiday, with the buzz that has already been building about Jesus, including, we're told, including the latest story from a nearby village called Bethany, where a crowd of people had just seen this Jesus of Nazareth raise to life a buried dead man named Lazarus. And so everyone is doing the math in their head, right? Passover plus miracles plus Jesus riding on this donkey. He's just got to be the one, right? And so as Jesus leaves the Mount of Olives, as he makes his westward descent toward Jerusalem, some people are throwing their cloaks on the road while others are laying down branches. John, in his gospel, says they're palm branches, these ancient symbols of victory for conquering kings. And those two are being placed on the road before him. Verse 9 The crowds that went ahead of him and those that follow shouted, Hosanna! to the Son of David, to the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You know that college football analogy works pretty well here because Passover, this time when emotions are running high, nationalistic zeal, people gathering in Jerusalem to proclaim their identity, to rekindle their hope in the Messiah. And they had a song, a song they would sing, these words of praise quoted here from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now the word Hosanna is a Hebrew expression that at its core means Lord save us. 
Lord, save us. Originally, it was a prayer. It was a cry for help. Later on, it became an expression of praise. Hosanna in the highest. In effect, meant glory to God in the highest, much like the angels proclaimed at the birth of Jesus, right? Verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. You can just feel it with Matthew's words, right? And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The whole city was stirred that if you didn't know anything about this Jesus, you were certainly going to hear about him now. And all those miraculous stories, right? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is day one of the eight days that changed the world. And those eight days make up one story that can change your life. And let me tell you how that can happen. As I think about this story, as we head into this holy week, there are two actions I want you to take. Two actions that I want you to take today, this week, and beyond. Lessons from Palm Sunday. First, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Live with hope that even in your most desperate moments, never give up on hope. I got to tell you, the hopeful enthusiasm that you see from the crowds here in this story is incredibly inspiring to me. It really is, especially when you think about the kind of oppressive lives they were living and all the hardships they had to endure. I mean, listen, compared to them, I know I'm soft, right? And if you had put me in their situation and forced me to go through all the injustice and unfairness that they had to face, I would have caved in an instant. I would have given up on hope a long time ago. I would have, because that's what life can do to us, right? And so even though we might not live in the first century under the cruelty of the Romans, under the self-serving hypocrisy of the religious leaders back then, there's still people today, right? People who abuse their power and privilege that can make our lives miserable. And then there's just the other stuff alive, right? Unkind blows, uncaring people, unexpected circumstances. And as all this comes our way, tries to rob us of our hope tries to rob us of our hope and turn us into victims. Helpless victims, hopeless victims. Victims who pass our days simply by existing because we've given up on living. Listen, I don't want you to be that kind of guy. I don't want you to be that kind of gal. Because no matter how difficult your life has been, there is hope on the horizon. There really is, and that hope is found in a God who is greater than all your hurts and all your hardships. A God who keeps his promise in his perfect timing no matter what. And a God who loves you so much that he will do whatever it takes to bring you back to himself. See, that's the heart behind this story of these eight days. And so just like those who lined the streets of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus passed by, I want to encourage you to be hopeful too. I want to encourage you to cry out those same words of prayer and praise. Hosanna, Lord, save me. Lord, change me. Lord, rescue me from my pit of despair, from my desperation that I'm in. Give me a supernatural hope that will bring me back to life. Would you do that for me? Because if you can somehow muster up a simple, honest, heartfelt prayer like that, I know that our God is caring enough 
to hear you. And he's strong enough to answer you. He really is. So be hopeful. Be hopeful that even in your most desperate moments, never give up on hope. And then second, stay open. Stay open. Let God show you what you need and let go of what you think you have to have. Let God show you what you need and let go of what you think you have to have. Because if we are going to be hopeful in God, then we also need to stay open to God. We do because there is a good news, bad news theme to Palm Sunday that we cannot afford to miss. So first, the good news. The good news is that the crowds back then really did see Jesus for who he was. That after putting together his ministry and miracles with his ride into Jerusalem, they just knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the promised one. There was no mistaking his actions. No, he truly was the hope of their hearts. He truly was the answer to their prayers. That's the good news. The bad news, though, is that they did mistake his intentions. They got his actions, but they missed his intentions. See, Jesus did come as a Messiah, but it wasn't going to be in the way that they wanted him to. No, they were looking for a national hero, a political deliverer, a military conqueror, someone who would vanquish the dreaded Romans and who would give them the freedom that they desperately longed for. But Jesus didn't come as a conquering hero. No, he came as a suffering servant. A suffering servant, a Messiah who would die an unjust death in our place for our sins on a cross. Why? Because the deliverance that Jesus came to bring wasn't political, it was spiritual. It wasn't national, it was universal. And it wasn't immediate, it was eternal. The king indeed had come and Jesus was ready to proclaim that, but the real significance of Palm Sunday is that Jesus came in his own way, that Jesus came in his own time, that Jesus came on his own terms, and that Jesus came for his own purposes. This is how Jesus came to the people back then, and it's also how he comes to us today. And so if you're going to experience all the blessings that God wants to pour out upon your life through his son Jesus, and he does, then you're going to need to stay open. You're going to need to stay open. You're going to need to let God be who he really is and not who you want him to be for you. And I got to tell you, that's really hard to do. It really is, because whether we know it or not, we all have our own set of short-sighted, of self-centered expectations of God, right? Short-sighted, self-centered expectations. Expectations that put God in a box. Expectations that lower his greatness, that limit his goodness. And when we do that, we shut off all that God wants to do and to be for us. And so even if it is incredibly uncomfortable and difficult for us, Palm Sunday reminds us that we need to stay open to the mysterious ways of God, ways that are rooted in his higher wisdom, which means we're also going to need to let go. Can you do that? To let go of everything we think we need to have 
everything that we think is going to bring us hope and give us life. And so instead of always demanding from God, give this to me, be this for me, our prayer needs to be, Hosanna, Lord, save me. Lord, rescue me because I am placing all of my hope in you. Hosanna, that is the prayer of someone who stays open to God. So let go of what you need, of what you think you have to have, and let God show you what you need, right? And so today, and over these eight days and beyond, be hopeful and stay open. Be hopeful, stay open, and as you're taking that journey, you know, we want to help you along the way. We want to do that as part of our eight days, one story series, and so here's how we're going to do that. That beginning today and running through next Sunday, we're going to have daily devotional thoughts all throughout the week that you can access on the front page of our website at our church blog. You can access it at our Facebook page. You can access them on our uh, mobile app as well. And these are just going to be brief moments every day to help slow you down, right? And to help you enter into the story of Jesus' final week. And then this Thursday, April 18th, we're going to have our Monday Thursday communion service. That's going to be here in Saginaw at 6 and 7.30, identical one-hour services. And this is a very personal, this is a very contemplative service, right? We're going to spend our time reflecting upon Jesus' journey to the cross through song, through scripture, through communion, and to meditate on all that Jesus went through on our behalf. And then the next day, Good Friday, April 19th, we're going to have these times of personal reflection. Both Saginaw and Bay City, and Saginaw it's going to be at the hub just off the lobby. We're going to open that up from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon in Bay City at our ministry center downtown, 12 to 2, 5 to 7. And this is really just a self-guided, self directed, you know, drop in on your own kind of thing to help keep your mind focused, to help keep your heart centered on Jesus's great love for you. And then next Sunday, on the 21st, day eight, is our Easter Sunday worship celebration. And we definitely want you here for that, right? Saginaw 8. 9.30, 11, 12.30. Bay City at John Glenn High School at 10.30. I mean, this is the culmination. This is the story. This is the hope. This is the exclamation point. But to appreciate Sunday, we want to take the journey together. So whoever you are, whatever you're going through, I want to invite you to join us on this journey, this sacred and special journey that God has for you. A journey of eight days, one story, hope for everyone. Let's pray together. And Lord, uh, even as I think about Palm Sunday, these, these two words of tension flood my heart, celebration and surrender. Celebration in a God who 
who loves us, who rescues us, who gives us hope. But then surrender to a God whose ways are so much higher than ours, who knows better what we need than we do ourselves. And so God, we need to surrender to your higher wisdom, to your greater love. As hard as that can be at times to let go what we think we have to have. But that you would meet us in that place of surrender, of desperation. And God, with the hundreds of people here, I mean, I know we all need hope, but some people desperately need it. Fill their heart inject the hope, God, that you have for them into their veins, that they would know that there is a God who loves them more than they could ever imagine. And that this story, the story of Jesus, is all about that love and all about that hope. And God, for, for all of us, recenter our feet on the solid forever rock of the hope in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who is risen, and who will come again. And that this would fill our hearts with prayer and praise all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And because of that, hopefully uh, words of joy and words of praise and words of thanksgiving will always be on our lips so let's stand and let that be true of us friends
As we're singing that song, I'm thinking about the people lining the streets of Jerusalem singing their praises to Jesus with how little they really knew about him. So here we are 2,000 years later. We know so much more about his great love for us. And so his praise, the praise of our Lord needs to be on our lips always and forever. So join us this week, the daily devotions, Thursday night communion, Friday reflection, and Easter Sunday, next Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you go from here, may his praise be on your lips and his hope in your heart. God bless you.